Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu talks about New Hampshire and why his state seems to regularly top Cato Institute fiscal and freedom rankings. Americans for Prosperity's Kurt Couchman details one way states can keep their fiscal ships afloat in times of upheaval. Cato's Walter Olson details the hows and the whys of fixing the Electoral Count Act. And Cato's Tommy Berry and Will Yateman discuss Justice Stephen Breyer as he steps down from the Supreme Court. In the past two years, the state of New Hampshire has topped Cato's rankings for both fiscal policy of the nation's governors and the Freedom in the 50 States report. At a recent Cato event, New Hampshire's Republican Governor Chris Sununu spoke with the authors of Cato's Freedom in the 50 States report, Will Ruger and Jason Sorens. Congratulations on New Hampshire topping the rankings this time. Um, we were just talking about how you got elected in 2016 and, and the state was number two then and now it's, it's number one. Um, so why do you think it is that um, New Hampshire is um, the, the freest state in the country? Is it um, the, the people of New Hampshire, uh, the culture, something about the government and institutions? What's your explanation? Um, you know, it, it's a little bit of all that. I think you can sum it up with uh, local control. Um, we have a not just a tradition, but a very long history of local control in that our town meetings matter. We have very high participation rates uh, when it comes to public service, whether it's at your town level or being met, uh, one of the 400 members of our legislature. And mm-hmm. when you have a one of the largest parliamentary bodies in the free world uh, with 400 members representing only 1.4 million people, by definition, even at the state level, it's the most rep- one of the most representative bodies of, of, of government in the world, which means the control is really at the individual level, right? So it goes back to that concept of local control. And when you have more local control, uh, an individual citizen has much more say on how their taxes are spent or what's going on in their schools or whether that pothole is going to get filled or not. And it's that sense of um, that is, in its essence, uh, taking on that responsibility. I have a responsibility to myself, my family, my community, and my voice can be heard and actually has some weight to it. So because of that, I think there is an, an inherent sense of freedom. There's an inherent sense of this isn't in the government's hands. It isn't a one-size-fits-all government solution to come down. It really is about my, my job as governor is to open up doors of opportunity, mm-hmm. but let the individuals decide whether they want to go through those doors or not. And let the, the most powerful debates on education and all of that to really happen at that local level where right. you can get the teachers involved and the real policymakers involved and the ones that can drive better results, not from the government level, but what's happening in the classroom or what's happening in your town, because those are the things that affect us every single day. A lot of, I think for many years, many states had that uh, concept and philosophy in the 1800s and early 1900s. And a lot of states really pushed hard to get away from that. And that's that's pushing away from checks and balances in many ways. That's pushing away from, um, you know, where you can just simply get the best results and where I think government can be more, most efficient. Um, It's most efficient when it's a wide open door for the individual. So it's a little bit of a sense of freedom. You could go all the way back and say it's part of our, our you know, Puritan days, right? Uh, back in, in New England and all of that. Um, and, you know, we kind of broke off from, you know, they were burning witches down in, in Massachusetts. So we kind of uh, broke off from that a little bit. 
Um, you know, some people think New Englanders and, and folks specifically in New Hampshire, well, they can be a little bit rude. No, we just, we're about ourselves. You know, we, we take care of our own communities and we very, feel very passionately about that. Um, and we spend a lot of time with that responsibility. And so in that is, I think, the essence of why New Hampshire is traditionally on, on top of the, the freedom charts. And the government has to respond to that. I mean, we could go past laws with more taxes and all this sort of thing, but we have to respond to the needs of the people because they have such a voice. I respect that. Um, and that's why I think, you know, we not only do we do we maintain that level of freedom, but there is that checks and balances on the government to make sure it never you know gets too far afield. Um, number two is pretty far afield. If we're ranked second in the country, we, we take personal offense to that. So we want to <laughs> read the book, challenge ourselves and get back to number one. And we were able to do it in the past few years, which is an honor. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, people talk about the New Hampshire advantage. Yes. And yeah. do you think it's because the citizens of New Hampshire have kind of internalized that this is something that is helpful for them? I mean, they love freedom. Mm. We, you know, I've been up there a lot. We know that. Yeah. But it seems like that New Hampshire advantage is something because the other states of New England just aren't doing as well. I mean, you're a you're a really different state than your neighbors. So it's not a regional effect. So tell us about like how people think about this New Hampshire advantage. I mean, business owners. Yeah, yeah. People have to remember we have uh, thirty minutes south of us is Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, communist central. Frankly, uh, just to the uh, west of us is Vermont. Uh, and Bernie Sanders, uh, anytime he gets too close to the New Hampshire border, we have alarms that go off on our watches. Uh, we have Quebec uh, to our north, a great Canadian partners, but very socialistic to the north. Uh, and then Maine, obviously. So we are surrounded on all sides. And you go beyond that, you get to New York and Connecticut and it really New Jersey. It really starts getting um, uh, ugly in terms of, of the list and, and restrictions of freedoms. Um, so we, I think a lot of folks think, oh, well, New Hampshire is just a, you know, a semi-blue state. No, it's not. We really are a purple state, right? Because we we hold those values so true. Um, so I think, you know, the New Hampshire advantage is really about no sales tax, no income tax, and pretty soon no interest and dividends tax. So you should think about moving there. I got rid of that this past year. It's, it's rolling down to zero. Um, but it's not just, to, I think to your point, it's not just about having low taxes. Good fundamental, good fundamentals around your uh, fiscal discipline is the cornerstone of opportunity for everything else. And I think because that New Hampshire advantage is built around strong fiscal discipline from a government level, it allows opportunity for individuals. And that's why we set ourselves apart. It's so easy for governments. You know, we talk about it and, and you guys get it. Uh, well, it will just be a 1% income tax today. And then it goes to 5 or 6%. Right. We never let that door crack. I've, I was shocked. I honestly was shocked. Even Democrats in New Hampshire proposed an income tax. And I thought, this is the death nail. And it really was. We were the only state to flip our House and Senate from Democrat to Republican in 2020, primarily because the Democrats ignored the New Hampshire advantage. They ignored that fundamental cornerstone, that essence of freedom, which is low taxation, which ultimately leads to less government intervention into your lives. Yeah, and Milton Friedman talked about the importance of economic freedom yeah. to overall freedom. You, you can't be a place that doesn't have That's economic right. freedom and be, and be considered free. And so, but you know, the last time you joined us here at Cato, where we are today, you discussed the number one ranking in your fiscal policy report card uh, on America's governors. Um, so congratulations on that. That's that's very much related to you. And congratulations again on this metric. But what has been going on in New Hampshire since you last sure. came to Cato? I mean, what do you, what have what have you been doing personally yeah. to advance freedom? But let's remember that we have you know, not just an executive branch, but the legislature. How has the sure. legislature been working in New Hampshire to increase freedom? Well, obviously, I mean, in the past couple of years, everything's 
gone a little bit haywire across the country. Everything from attitude to what you're seeing uh, nationally and, and you know happen here in Washington D.C. And most importantly, I think what you're seeing in the states. And I, I maybe I'm saying this because I'm biased as a governor, but you know if you if we can take a pause on the and, and talk about the pandemic for a minute, mm-hmm. when you're talking about what happened with COVID in those, especially in 2020, it was the governors, both Republican and Democrat, frankly, that had to stand up and say, okay. We've been given flexibility by the former Trump administration, which was very powerful and very much appreciated by all 50 governors. The CARES Act money came out, whatever it was. But then we had flexibility to design systems that really empowered us for our citizens. It wasn't a one size fits all. Um, And that was a refreshing uh, note out of Washington, D.C. at the time in a time when it was it was most needed. But since then, I mean, maybe it was because, you know, last time I was here, we had I had lowered some taxes and, and uh, you know, um, you know, we got this great favorable rating for um, being very fiscally responsible. Uh, I cut more taxes. That was the first thing. Right. Um, because we could. And the model has borne out. It works. Mm-hmm. We have business taxes in New Hampshire. We had an interest in dividends tax and, and uh, we had a, a few a few others. When we lowered them, people said, oh, wait, there's more economic freedom there. I might have more flexibility for my families. So so businesses started to come there and grow there and make investments. And what happens? Our revenues actually went up, right? Because it's long-term sustainable. So the revenues actually go up when we cut taxes. So we did it again and again. Uh, This year, our our revenue numbers are through the roof. They're absolutely through the roof. So the challenge for us is to say, how do we return it? We returned $100 million. You know, legislation said, okay, $100 million off the statewide property tax. Boom, done. Like, just give people property tax relief. Let's send them cash back. When the CARES Act money came, very proud of the fact that we didn't use all that CARES Act money, like many other states did, just to do government stuff. We created a $400 million a Main Street Relief Fund for small businesses. Let's give them the money. Mm-hmm. And we did that in 30 days. From the day I announced it to the day the first checks went out, 30 days. And we created a program, created an application, sent, uh, I think, $350 million out the first time, another $50 million out the second. We did it for nonprofits because they're employers. We did it for self-employed, the only state to do a self-employment fund. So yeah. what we've been trying to do is not just cut taxes, but continue that momentum we've built of success where we keep sending the money, if you will, because it ain't my money. It ain't the government. It's your money. <laughs> Right. And we really try to emphasize that this is your money. So you guys spend it. I want to create opportunity by sending it back to cities and towns, local businesses, whatever it is. So we're able to do that both in and outside of the pandemic, able to cut taxes. People said the interest. We had a five percent interest in dividends tax, uh, I think, for 40 years. Uh, my father was a former governor, as you know, and I won't lie to you. I uh, I made a few few phone calls and I've been rubbing it in his face that I'm the one that actually got rid of the interest in dividends tax. That'll be rolled back to zero in the next few years. So, um, but again, the revenues keep coming. Mm-hmm. We're now one of the fastest growing states in the country, the fastest in, in New England, which we're very proud of. So my goal in that isn't just to say thank you for the awards and, and the accolades, but hopefully show a model that works to other states. Right. We are, mm-hmm. I, I want to be a proof in the model. And I don't think necessarily, you know, Charlie, Governor Baker, I think does, a, a, frankly, I think he does a very good job in Massachusetts, given the political mm-hmm. dynamics. Phil Scott, I think, does a very good job in Vermont, given the political dynamics he right. has to deal with over there. Um, but hopefully we are a model of how to do things a little differently, not just to Republican, but maybe even some blue states as well. It works. We have the revenues coming in. You can cut taxes. Be a place people want to come to. And the most important part of that, it's sustainable, right? Those businesses are growing to be there, not just today and next year, but for 5, 10, 20 years down the road. And that's the most important thing I take home. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be governor forever. I, I Trust me, <laughs> just trying to go into a, a fourth term. 
um, is, is hard enough. It strains on the family and all of that. But, um, but I, if I'm going to leave a legacy, I just want programs and things that we've done in a positive way to be sustainable and last. And not just because it keeps getting voted on, because it's working. It's a tangible working model that even the ultra left would have to say, well, let's not touch that. It, it works too well. That's always my goal. Yeah, the best governors aren't the ones that build temples. It's the ones that give, you know, give the most power back to people to make sure that they can have their own kind of, uh, you know, kind of live their own life well, right? That's, and that's it. That's, I think, what you're trying to do. But Jason? Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to follow up on that and ask, what would you say are the main policy lessons for other governors? You know, how can... How can they achieve good policy and what does that mm -hmm. good policy look like? So uh, we talked about, I won't harp on it too much, we mm -hmm. talked about the economic freedom yeah. and that starts with cutting taxes. Mm -hmm. um, you still have to create a system, you still need government systems, right? You, you mm -hmm. can't be, I don't, I'm not with these anti-government, you know, anarchists, they're, they're out there, let me tell you. But you still need government systems because without the government system, there's no, you can't create the metrics of accountability mm -hmm. or the standards you want to meet or the goals. Someone still has to be there to, to, Assess that, measure that, and challenge yourself to, hey, we tried five things, A, B, C, D, and E. Mm -hmm. A, B, and E worked. These two didn't. So let's pivot. So one of the goals I try to emphasize is whatever you do, be flexible. Don't create a system that you have to be stuck with for 10 years. Create something that is flexible. I'm an engineer by trade. I was a civil and environmental engineer for many years. And um, I cleaned up hazardous waste sites and all this sort of thing. But I always learned you, you never design the system perfectly the first time. Mm -hmm. So you got to create right. flexibility in there so you can pivot whether I'm here or not um, and, and down the road. Um, you know, from that comes other from that economic freedom comes other opportunities like, believe it or not, school choice. Mm -hmm. It's very much attached attached to economic freedom. We passed school choice in New Hampshire. So how did we do that? We said, well, let's focus on those that need choice the most: lower income families. Mm -hmm. So families up to three hundred percent of the federal poverty level can now use the state portion of their funds, whatever state money would normally go to to educate that child in the school. That's your money. You decide where it can go, whether it's a private school, homeschooling, tutoring, virtual learning academies online, whatever it is, right? The parent and the child knows the best path. Now, 98, 99% of kids, public schools in New Hampshire are phenomenal. They're great. I'm the first governor in 25 years to come up through the public schools in New Hampshire. And let me tell you, they are phenomenal. But for one or 2% of the kids, sometimes those four walls of the traditional classroom don't work. So let's not just try, keep trying to cram it in. Because um, it can be miserable for those kids. It really can. And there's so much potential bottled up in those kids that never gets um, kind of brought to the surface. So let's let them design their path. So now these families have that, that kind of money. And that, in its essence, is economic freedom. It's giving the money back to that family saying, you design your own educational pathway. We thought, um, you know, a few hundred kids might take up the program in the first year. It's something like seven times what we expected, mm -hmm. which tells you the demand was there. And it's mostly, frankly, lower income, a lot of inner city families that just that school wasn't working for their kid, for their child, for whatever reason. And it's not for me to say that why it isn't working or whatever it is. It's me to say, I appreciate you don't think it's working. So here's the dollars. Here's all the other options. You do you. You find that best path, best, best path for your child. Yeah. Do you do you think that with the, the some of the issues with schooling and the pandemic, not to mention some of the aspects uh, where we've seen the culture war come to the classroom, is this going to uh, actually increase demand? Do you think in New Hampshire? Without for, a doubt. Right? So oh yeah. What what might it look like over the next five to ten years? Well, I think it increases demand all over the country. Right. You're yeah. seeing it. I mean, you've seen some very uh, successful uh, school choice models, and all every state's a little different. Arizona, Florida. West Virginia has a really powerful model moving forward. 
So every state's a little different, as it should be, because mm-hmm. your city dynamics, your socioeconomic dynamics are a little different. Your um, accessibility, geographic accessibility to education is always a challenge. Um, we have some rural parts of, the, of, of New Hampshire where um, folks would love another uh, opportunity, but maybe a charter school isn't nearby or there's not a private school within 40 miles and transportation becomes an issue. So you have to look at those dynamics as well. But without a doubt, to your point, the pandemic, I think, really opened up a couple uh, a couple things. First, uh, not to just bash on unions, but uh, I try not to be a union basher, although I'm very pro-right to work. Um, the teachers union is out for the teachers union. I mean, even teachers are rebelling against the teachers union now. You're seeing that all across the country. Um, they're out for their own interests, and, and that is a failing model. It's a failing model. You saw it really play out in Virginia, right, with Glenn Youngkin, who, by the way, a huge fan of Glenn Youngkin. I think he's going to be a phenomenal um, a governor. I think he gets uh, inaugurated in the, in the next couple of days. I think he's going to be great. But, you know, he won in Virginia not on some driven party platform stuff. He won because he simply said, parents matter, right? Mm-hmm. Parents matter. It's that simple. And let's let's champion that because it's a working it's a model that has always worked. So whether a combination of what you saw with schools shutting down just in excessive amounts across the country, um, you know, we made sure our schools were going to be open. And we had a lot of superintendents call and say, you can't do this. You can't open up. You can't do it. And we said, no, we are Mm -hmm. opening those doors. It isn't about you. It is not about the system It's about that child at the end of the day. And I understand during the early days of the pandemic, things had to tighten up and close to figure out what, what was really going on. How serious was this? We had no resources, no PPE or mat- like none of that existed. But then it was, okay, there's a lot of kids that might've fallen through the gaps here. Um, I made sure the schools got open before the end of the year because we had, I said, we have to assess these kids because it's about them. We have to get our eyes on them and see what's happening so that, again, when they have options or we have resources, we know where to put them in September. Let's not wait till September to figure out where we are and how how's it going. We got to be way ahead of the game here. And in that sense, it really worked. And it empowered parents to say, yes, we come first. My kids come first, not just the system. And for most kids, it was working fine. I mean, not remote. I mean, that worked very, didn't, didn't work very well for many people at all. But getting back in the classroom was a, a huge uh, sign of, uh, sigh of relief. But for some parents, they said, okay, let's take this opportunity and find another avenue. And we're just very, pro- I think, in New Hampshire, very progressive on online programs, VLAX, what we call our VLAX programs, charter schools. We're, I'm very pro-charter school, very pro-other option, right? Yeah. And um, homeschooling, great homeschooling yeah. program in New Hampshire. So we're able to open up those avenues. Our commissioner of education, I think, did a great job uh, really opening those doors, not for government, but for families yeah. and, and marketing that. And educational yeah. freedom is a, a big yeah. part of mm. freedom in the 50 states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So uh, it, it did make national news when you decided to run for re-election as governor rather than, uh, than run for the Senate. Mm-hmm. And so you must uh, believe that there is some unfinished business, uh, even in New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned sure. right to work. I mean, what, what would you yeah. see as your agenda going forward? So, you know, I really, um, it's a great question. Um, there, we've got a lot done in terms of getting things moving forward with a whole new system. But you don't just set up the system and say, yep, there you go, we're, we're good, right? You got to see it through. I'm a manager. I like, I, I'm a CEO, if you will. I, I like to see, design these systems and see them through and know that there's going to be some kinks in the road. Um, we, I think I understand the intent of what we've tried to do with a lot of these things. We rebuilt our whole new system for um, substance use disorder, right? Mm-hmm. New Hampshire is the tip of the spear when it came to the opioid crisis. So I, it was politically challenging. But we did the right thing. We kind of broke down the old system, if you will. We rebuilt up a whole new system, bottom up, right? Kind of that local control, individual empowerment, 
bringing in a lot of private sector, not just dollars and resources, but assistance with, where the programs are driven by the private sector. Um, for the last two years, we haven't seen an increase in overdose deaths. We're the only state in the country to do that. And so we're not done. You can't just rest on that. I think there's still a lot more work to do. We still Our, our numbers are still too high for me. So I want to see that through. School choice, just getting underway. Right. Still, uh, maybe we could see some kinks in there. Maybe there's opportunity to grow it. So let's kind of see that all the way through. COVID is still very much with us. And I, I, I fear, I hope it's gone tomorrow. We all know it won't be. Um, so if it is here for the long term, potentially, I want to make sure whatever we're doing is long term sustainable, which is why I stay away from you know, mandates and shutdowns and all of that, because then it becomes like a light switch. And boy, the insecurity you build in the system, what you're doing to the right. citizens, we're in a state of emergency today, we have a mask order today, we're shutting down a bit, stop it. Stop it. You got that is not sustainable. You got to build a long term sustainable system. So I'd love to see right to work done. I'd love to expand a couple of the programs that I think we've gotten off the ground. You know, we have paid, I, I passed a paid leave, paid family leave program in New Hampshire. But here's the fundamental difference it's your choice. It is not an income tax. It is not government driven. The government is not going to be the insurance company. It is pure choice. It is privatized and it brings in the private sector. Now, where they go nationally, I don't know. It's the only one of its kind in the country and that's going to get underway. And if you want to buy, the, buy into the system, great. If you don't, that's on you too. So as in, from an individual standpoint, it, it, uh, it doesn't drive cost or drive burden on that individual. So we try to empower that. Those are the types of programs that are very new you don't see them anywhere else in the country, frankly. So I still think there's a year or two to make sure they get underway, they get nurtured the right way, so hopefully this is sustainable. And if they don't work, that's okay too. You own that and say, boy, we tried something. It didn't work. We're going to pull back on it. I, politicians nowadays, they're, they're so hesitant to admit that they, yeah. <laughs> that they tried a bunch of things and something might not have worked. What a shocker. It's okay. We do that in the private sector. Right. In the private sector, you want people to innovate, mm -hmm. try things, and fail. It's okay to fail. It's actually an amazing opportunity sometimes in the private sector to learn mm -hmm. from the failures. Government and politicians don't seem to have that mindset, and we're trying to bring that to the table. Well, and the advantage of federalism, right, is that you don't have a countrywide failure when, it, mm -hmm. when governors and legislators mm -hmm. experiment. That's it. I mean, we saw what happened. Did, did, I think Vermont tried to do a, a, you know, a pretty socialistic health care reform mm -hmm. that didn't work. Well, thank goodness the whole country didn't have to suffer right. from that, right? Right. So that's one of the things we like about federalism. Yeah. Uh, and people can vote with their feet. You know, Jason yeah, yeah. mentioned earlier the you know how migration patterns yeah. relate to freedom. I mean, it's shocking. Even controlling for climate, people are moving to more free states, yeah. and people are are fleeing the Illinois and and heck. How could you screw up California given the weather and the natural resources, but people want to leave places let, like let, that? Let, can we talk about California for a second? <laughs> sure. So I used to live there. I lived in San Francisco for three years. Any state, any state would kill for their tourism, mm -hmm. would kill for their ports, huge, yeah, multi, right. multi, multi-billion dollar uh, industry, kill for the Hollywood and entertainment, their mm -hmm. agriculture, right? right. Um, it, they have it all. And boy, have they just thrown it away. I mean, all the opportunity in the world. They should be trying to get away from America because they're so rich and wealthy and attractive, you know. Um, it, but it, it's just the opposite. And it's just a, it's so sad because there's so much potential out there. And again, I don't bring that up so we can just rail on California mm -hmm. because it has so much potential. I, I rail on it because I want people to understand policy matters. Mm -hmm. Who you elect matters. And I'm not even getting into the Republican Democrat thing. But people that really understand how to capitalize on policy and believe in the individual believe in that that what you guys are espousing that freedom that really defines the success of the state ultimately and ultimately the success of the individual less burden less worry on the individual 
Well, I like what you said about believing in people because uh, New Hampshire doesn't have a seatbelt mm-hmm. law. But does that mean that people all over New Hampshire are getting no. into car accidents and flying through their windshield? No, no. Why we, not? No, we have, a, we have a very good rate because, look, you talk about the importance of seatbelts. You talk about that it keeps you safer and all of that. And you talk about it's your responsibility to wear a seatbelt or wear a helmet when you're riding a motorcycle. I mean, right. we don't have that law either because it's your personal responsibility. And the, the vast majority of people do. Right. Um, so, again, it's okay. you have to believe in the individual. Too often big governments... Their philosophy is, well, we don't believe in the individual. I've had, I've had extremely liberal, socialistic Democrats come up and tell me right to my face that, well, low-income families don't have the education to know what's best for their children. Mm-hmm. The offense of that statement is astounding. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't get offended that much. I'm a pretty positive person. <laughs> but when I hear things like that, I think, my gosh. It's, it's not my job per se, but I think it's all of our responsibilities to find folks to take leadership positions that understand the power of the individual, the importance of it, and believe in them. That's where the best ideas come from, right? And, and you got to open up your, 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 your mindset to that as opposed to just politics or, or a political platform. Yeah. Well, let me talk um, or ask you a little bit about the about the pandemic, because this is legitimately a, a tough issue. What do you do about sure. a, a contagious disease? Um, that spreads from person to person while still re- respecting freedom as much as you can. You know, even people who mm-hmm. believe in freedom have a lot of disagreements about that. Um, you know, I came to here to D.C. with my wife, actually, and um, we were going to go to this restaurant that she liked. And we saw that, oh, actually, there's a there's a vaccination mandate in restaurants here in, in mm-hmm. D.C. I'm triple vaccinated, mm-hmm. but I didn't think to bring my right. vaccine card. I'm just right. not used to that. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of wonder, like, it. it now that I'm confronted with it, it does seem a little invasive for government to mandate that everywhere throughout the uh, the entire city. Um, so I'm just curious. I mean, how do you how do you navigate that? Um, you know, what what sorts of policies do you see as going too far? What are the right policies for sure. addressing the pandemic? So one thing I always remind folks is you really have to separate 2020 from 2021. In that, yeah. in 2020, we didn't have a vaccine, we didn't yeah. have tools, we didn't have PPE, and that's why virtually every state went to some sort of oh, hold it, let's. Hold, let's take a pause on a lot of this. It was spreading like crazy, the elderly, the mm-hmm. outbreaks, and, and virtually every state did. And then we started really opening things up and, and doing it in a way that, again, two things, kept some guidelines on things such that the consumer and individuals felt safe and secure. Um, but you know, in New Hampshire, when we talked about regulations around businesses, how does that pertain to COVID or anything like that, with the restaurants, we brought the restaurant people in. They basically wrote their rules and they worked with myself, my epidemiologist, and they designed it the way they wanted to design it. The the bowling alleys designed their rules the way they wanted to design it. The salons designed the system the way they wanted to design it. And we'd tweak it here and there. But at the end of the day, because we let those individuals, those businesses have the right say, it gave everyone the confidence and everyone the comfort as we move forward. And that's why we've just been so flexible through it. Now, once the vaccine comes and the boosters or whatever you want to talk about, those are the tools where again, as an individual, I now have the power to protect myself and my family. I have that individual power and responsibility. We're, we're, we're good. We're, we're, we're still managing the pandemic. There's still a crisis out there. It is not mm-hmm. over. But from the government's perspective, it's we're not going, at least in New Hampshire, we're not going back to states of emergencies and, mm-hmm. and statewide mandates. If a business wants to require something, that's their right to do so. I believe that. Even if I don't agree with it, it's their right to do so. If a private hospital says we're going to mandate a vaccine for, it's always been their right to do so, and I'm going to keep supporting that because that's their right. Other, there's a couple other governors that didn't agree with me on that, but 
not many, but a few, because it's businesses do have rights. I've had people say businesses don't have rights. To, of course they do. <laughs> of course they have rights. They're private businesses. They're private entities. So uh, I don't believe in government-driven mandates. Um, they are doomed to fail, as we're seeing, right? Uh, we're fighting them in courts, obviously. But I can't tell you the number of um, not necessarily Republican or, or right-leaning business owners that have called me and say, how do I get out of this ocean mandate? I'm going to lose uh, auto dealers, for example. Right. They're going to lose their staff that work in the, the techs that work in their auto dealership are literally going to go across the street to the smaller guy, right. have no better um, uh, uh, a safety risk in terms of COVID, right. uh, and lose people that maybe have been working for that company for 20 years. Yeah. It's tearing families. It's tearing businesses apart, you know, these family businesses. Um, I just, my big thing is letting individuals and businesses decide how they're going to manage themselves. And mm -hmm. I, and you have to stay consistent in that right, right. as much as I don't think there should be a government mandate forcing the vaccine. Mm -hmm. I also don't believe there should be a government mandate telling businesses they can't have a vaccine. If that restaurant wants to ask for a vaccine card, that's their business. I don't think the government should force it, right. yeah. but that's exactly. their business. I might not agree with it, but that's their business. Chris Sununu is the Republican governor of New Hampshire. Jason Sorens and Will Ruger are authors of the Cato Institute's Freedom in the 50 States. Where should states look for state budgets that balance through business cycles? Kurt Couchman of Americans for Prosperity offered his thoughts on the Cato Daily Podcast. States overwhelmingly are supposed to have balanced budgets, and uh, there are many gimmicks that states use to sort of avoid really having balanced budgets. They often leave themselves in some really bad situations with regard to bonded debt uh, that encumbers future legislatures when it comes to appropriating funds. They have to pay those debts. They don't want their bond rating to go down, and this uh, legislature from a few years ago has really tied our hands. Uh, so how do states get out of that? How do states, uh, you know, right the fiscal ship in such a way that legislatures aren't encumbered in the future when they want to spend X, Y, or Z, but also, um, you know, don't get into too much debt and have the resources they need during downturns to uh, handle whatever might befall them? Well, Caleb, there are a whole bunch of different aspects to state budgeting. There are 49 states with balance requirements. That means a different thing in basically every state. Some of those are constitutional. Some of them are statutory. Capital budgeting, the bonded debt that you referred to, that is typically treated quite differently from the operating budget. So the proposal that we're talking about today mostly is about the operating side of the budget. Uh, which doesn't even include the federal funds that have really specific strings as to what it can be used for and maintenance of effort and that sort of thing. In restructuring uh, state spending, what do you generally propose? The proposal is for states to balance their budgets over the business cycle. That is to use structural balance. A number of other countries uh, have uh, specific provisions in their constitutions and their laws to do this. Switzerland, Sweden, Germany are a couple examples. In the U.S. states, there are a number of states that sort of do this on an ad hoc basis by using their rainy day funds. They draw them down during recessions or other emergencies, and then they build them back up during the good years. 
there's a range of management quality across the different states. And so this proposal is to set in place a rule that allows spending to grow at a certain rate. This tends to reduce the ability of legislators to overspend during the good years. And by that same token, it allows them to deficit spend during recessions when your economy is soft and you still have all of these um, these needs out there and people are also demanding unemployment benefits and Medicaid and you know childhood nutrition programs and all the rest of that, the safety nets. Um, but the difference, the main difference right now is that um, when we get into recessions, states kind of scramble to figure out what they're going to do. Some raise taxes, some cut spending, some do a combination of things, and some hope and pray for federal bailouts. Federal bailouts come with strings. Those strings erode state sovereignty. Those strings stick around long, long after the funding is gone. As, as we've seen with COVID, some of the money that was distributed to states came with the uh, requirement, the constitutionally dubious requirement uh, that states not lower taxes with the money. Absolutely. And this happened under the Affordable Care Act as well with the Medicaid expansion that the Supreme Court struck down. You know, you imagine that state lawmakers should, that is our idealized vision of state lawmakers as good stewards of taxpayer money, you imagine that they would, during the good times, put money away into some sort of rainy day fund. Absolutely. And then during a recession that they would spend down those reserves in order to meet their obligations when the tax revenue is not coming in. And that's not how it works because that's not what the incentives are. Well, it depends on the state. Sure. It depends on the state. Some states do this. Uh, I've talked to a number of state legislators, and that's exactly what their states do. And I've talked to other state legislators. And yeah, they just they spend as much as the revenue they have coming in during the good years. And then they're kind of left in this unpleasant situation when the recession comes, as it inevitably does. Uh, and so a lot of states, you know, they end up with these durable tax increases and temporary spending cuts. So they kind of ratchet up. Uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania and live in Virginia, so uh, both competitive states, and so sometimes that sort of thing happens. But in other states like New York and New Jersey, I mean, it's tax increases, tax increases, tax increases. And they never really grapple with the underlying drivers of their excessive spending growth. And these, some of these states just spend way above what other states do, uh, and there's not really a clear reason that they do that except that they're not disciplined. So what should trigger the inability of a government to spend during the good times? We propose a rule. Um, the rule is that spending would continue to grow along with a rolling average the last five years of uh, gross state product growth. And what that means is that you're incorporating the good years and the bad years into that growth rate. Um, and it works out so that it, it balances over the business cycle. And uh, one other thing that I think is important is to make sure there's a connection between the spending and the revenue. If you just try to control spending uh, without controlling or without linking it to revenue in some way, then you might control spending. But if you're not also um, linking that to revenue, then that doesn't necessarily solve your deficit and debt problem, which in the States is really important because of bond markets. So you need to give them the assurance that you're going to be solvent. You're not going to be increase, increasing your debt burden um, for operating costs unnecessarily. And, uh, and so that's really crucial to, to making this work. So all you would basically do is you would um, reduce that rolling average of GDP growth just a little bit after each deficit. 
cumulatively. So if you have three years of deficits, it's three times that little amount. Uh, and then after surpluses, you reduce that deviation from the rolling average, go back toward it, but not above. And that makes sure that you have enough space to, you know, be fiscally solvent over the long term. So in, in some sense, what you're seeing, if you want to visualize this in positive XY territory, uh, you would see a line, which is uh, what you expect state uh, budgets to be. And then around that line, a sort of wavy, uh, like a sine curve tracking along that line, uh, indicating uh, revenues. That's exactly right. Under this proposal, spending would grow at a very smooth and predictable rate. And yeah, revenue just kind of fluctuates with the economy. And how much it fluctuates is really a function of the tax code in a state. If you tax the more stable tax bases, it'll be less volatile. If you tax things like personal and business income, it's going to be more volatile. Uh, but you can you can suppress a lot of that volatility when it comes to your policy. The The key here is that um, by having that stable, predictable spending growth rate, you don't have to significantly alter, for short-term reasons, your spending or your revenue policies. So that gives you predictability and stability for the people that live in your state, the businesses that operate in your state, reduce their uncertainty and increase their prosperity. Kurt Couchman is a senior fellow in fiscal policy at Americans for Prosperity. One of the still unsung contributors to the one-sided confusion over who won the 2020 presidential election was the Electoral Count Act, the law that guides members of Congress and the vice president about how to administratively certify the presidential election. Cato's Walter Olson details the problems with the law and how it ought to be fixed sooner than later. Word from the Hill suggests that there is quite a lot of bipartisan support for many of the, perhaps most or all of the key points in reforming the Electoral Count Act. Uh, you know, knock on wood, but there are really some indications that there is some consensus, not in every single issue, but on a lot of the important issues, what generally needs to be done. And this is a laundry list, inevitably, because what might be ideal is one thing that's not going to happen, which is to rewrite the law from start to finish. I think a lot of people recognize that would be the best if we had a lot of time and the country were not highly polarized. Uh, in practice, what you are more likely to get is a laundry list of four or six general categories of cleaning it up. And let me list what some of them are. The role of the vice president is is probably one of the easiest ones to get consensus on because no one that I know of is especially pushing the, the argument in Congress that the vice president has discretion. So that one uh, I take as a given. It, it, if there is reform, it will probably include some language specifying that. Before we get to the grounds for objections, which are in some ways the, the meatiest part of this, let's talk a little about the procedure that gave them so much trouble last time. And it arises from the threshold needed for an objection. The rule had been that if you have so many as one House member and one senator willing to object to the results from the state, then uh, there is an objection. And it must go through the full process of consideration. And we know from earlier years that some very dubious objections 
to earlier president's elections. Like, remember the wild claims about deep old voting machines supposedly helping George W. Bush? Well, that actually got aired because it only took a tiny handful of Democratic critics. Uh, and there were other objections to other presidents where they found objections in one house, but maybe wouldn't get a senator. And so it, it died without producing a debate. Nonetheless, if nothing else, it is a tempting soapbox for someone who wants publicity to get up, find one member of the other house to join them in an objection, and get a couple of pre-hours of press-friendly objection time to make some unrelated point about the election being unfair. So we've now seen that emanating from both parties at different times over multiple elections. We don't need that. I think there's therefore going to be wide interest in raising the threshold. Perhaps 10% of each house, perhaps 20% or 30% of each house need to sign on to an objection. If they can't get 20%, they're probably not close enough to actually sustaining the objection as valid. Uh, if they do have as many as 20%, then it's probably not just a few attention seekers. There probably is a significant faction that would be worth hearing out. And again, if Congress is so divided that 20% of each house will vote for an objection to all 50 states just to delay things, then you're in lots of trouble. But we're not claiming that we can solve all sorts of trouble. We're just trying to, to eliminate some of the easier cases where the country is not at, at the precipice, but but the, the process is being abused. So there you've got the procedural part, which is make it more demanding to get an objection onto the floor and set aside some of the debate from both houses. And again, there's one where I think the very likely to be some bipartisan interest in coming to some agreement on that. Now you turn to the question, all right, which objections should be taken up and what are valid grounds for challenging and potentially throwing out electoral votes? And it's tempting, but it would not be correct to say, uh, no, no, their hands should be tied. They should just take what is sent them. Uh, we know in the first place, because it happened with Hayes Tilden, that there could conceivably be multiple slates submitted with a plausible claim to uh, representing someone official in the state. Hasn't happened in a long time, but they have to consider that it might happen. Other wild things could happen. A state could send in too many electoral votes. You can't just count those. If a state sent in too many electoral votes, which ones would you count? It has happened before that there was dispute about whether a state had become a state in time. Probably not going to happen, but you want to think out the, the the possibilities. So just suffice it to say that there are instances, some case in which someone's signature is forged, some case in which someone voted on the wrong day, in which there would be a genuine case for leaving to Congress some of that power of judgment about which electors to count. Now, the analysis that Cato's Andy Craig has made, which I think is very Right, very much on the right track, is to point out that there are two elections that go on in what we think of the, as the presidential election system. There is the popular election in which people go to the polls and select the electors in the electoral college. And to be clear, this is that that vote occurs because state legislatures have delegated to voters that task. Yes, under the Constitution, the state legislatures have a lot of discretion about how to structure the selection of presidential electors. Every state currently leaves it to general popular election. And I think there is a good case that 
whatever decision they made before the election, they then have to stick with that. They can't change to a different method of selection. But if they wanted to, and in the 19th century, you did see a couple of variations in which they uh, used a different method. But the once they have settled on that, then you have election number one, which is voters come together and select a state of slate of eight or ten or whatever the number is electors, and then you have the second election, as you might call it, in which those eight or ten or eleven electors come together on a certain day and cast their votes, as we know from the controversy over so-called faithless electors. It has happened sometimes that one of them would vote for a third-party candidate or uh, in, in some other way not vote for who they were expected to. But that second election is the one that Congress is being asked to canvas, being asked to examine to make sure that there was no fraud or misadventure. They are not being asked to go back and look at the first election because by the time the electors meet, controversies over the first election should already have been sunk and melded into an answer. There has been an opportunity to challenge to obtain court review in all states of whether the initial vote canvas was correct, uh, whether a different group should be impaneled to be those 10 electors. And uh, when those 10 electors meet, not having been successfully challenged in court, the first set of controversies goes away. It stops being alive for Congress to look at. Congress looks at the potential controversies of the second election, which is, is there an imposter who is a different person than was the named elector? You know, all that range of different things. And so the idea that many have been talking about, which I think is a promising one, is to try to uh, come up with an exhaustive list of here are all the things, however unlikely, that we believe would justify refusing to accept a reported electoral vote. Another idea which might complement that is to spe specify, and by the way, uh, these are three things that would not justify, you know, that uh, just to try to lock and bolt the door against people coming in saying, you know, let me tell you about, you know, mysterious electronic communication with voting machines. You know, we need to rerun this, this state. No, if you have not gotten uh, your act together sufficiently to do that challenge in such a way as to affect the uh, seating of that state's electors. In other words, if the court challenges, which they were free to um, pursue there, failed, then Congress is not going to give you another bite at that apple. I guess neither here nor there. It would sort of forestall perhaps phone calls the day before Congress is set to meet to count those votes to certain secretaries of state in the country to find votes, which, by the way, I think is a felony in Georgia. But I'm, I'm going to leave that for the court uh, process to sort out. But the, <laughs> but the most of this is nothing special as far as the finality that is required of elections. Uh, we have always known when it comes to elections for other offices, when it comes to court review of elections, that finality is important rather than leaving doors endlessly open for the relitigation of elections. You need certainty as to who won. And Accordingly, you funnel the court challenges and the various other ways which can be administrative challenges within a state election board or whatever. You funnel those things into the early part of the period so that people have to put their cards on the table more or less immediately uh, if they think that there has been a fraud that needs to be sued or, or you know, put into the administrative review procedure. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. 
Justice Stephen Breyer departs the Supreme Court at the end of this term. What does he leave behind as a legacy on the court? How did he differ with his colleagues when it comes to administrative law and textual interpretation? For the Cato Daily Podcast, Will Yateman and Tommy Berry discussed Breyer's legal approach. Before his time on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, what was now Justice Stephen Breyer's background? He was an administrative law scholar um, at Harvard. Um, he wrote a number of influential books and papers. Um, he worked as the right-hand man um, on Capitol Hill of uh, the Ted Kennedy Committee that led deregulation of the airlines. And that's really where he cut his teeth um, before he was appointed to be a judge in the First Circuit um, and then ultimately became a Supreme Court justice. And notably, uh, I, Willie, I think I, I made reference to this in a conversation we were having uh, offline, which was that uh, Breyer is interviewed for the Commanding Heights documentary, and he discusses for, for at least a little bit the uh, competition among airlines in a state of price controls and said, uh, well, you couldn't compete on price, so you began competing on services that you provided. And so uh, he was talking about just it being an uncomfortable position, being a federal regulator, uh, trying to regulate the deliciousness of meals on airlines in order to prevent this kind of, uh, of competition. But you, you said that he was uh, quick to jump on administrative law cases, what did his jurisprudence look like in that area? I think uh, with what you set forth, I mean, with the way you introduced the question, you sort of get at it. Um, he specifically, I mean, with respect to uh, airline deregulation, he took on this thesis of the time that regulation was necessary to prevent, quote unquote, um, excessive competition. Um, and ultimately, you know, it led to a uh, uh, highly beneficial deregulation of that sector. Um, I should note here, however, by no means was he a libertarian. Um, that is to say, he, he was progressive. He had progressive values, and he believed in regulation. He believed in societal good that could be achieved by the administrative state. However, um, I guess what he sought was to make it more efficient. And in his learned approach to doing so, he was willing to slay certain sacred cows, such as this notion that excessive competition is an impetus for regulation. Um, and then later he took on um, sort of the irrationality of the precautionary principle. Um, so in so doing, in so trying to uh, make regulation more effective, more efficient, if you will, he ruffled some feathers. Um, you know, so that is to say, he's a, it's a complicated legacy. It's a complicated approach that he brought to administrative law. Highly pragmatic, um, ultimately to the end of making administrative governments uh, governance better. But however, again, in so doing, his proposed reforms would often anger progressives. So a complicated legacy. But what was what were some highlights in terms of uh, cases that he? dealt with administrative law that uh, that you found heartening or you think contributed to a more rational constitutional order? Well, so as a general matter, he was such a nuanced and thoughtful writer and, and you know, a, a judge, justice, that his opinions were so context dependent that they often 
didn't have a, a large reach. I mean, he was not given to rhetoric of the sort that gets cited over and over again. Um, and sort of his long-term legacy, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's very much, um, it's complicated, much like his views on the administrative state that I just discussed. And, and what I mean by that is he set forth uh, during his time in the court a number of reforms in administrative law that to him were all about making the administrative state more efficient, better. Ultimately, however, these reforms were co-opted by uh, largely uh, conservative justices or, or so-called conservative justices, that is, ones that were appointed by Republican presidents, who would then take these principles further um, than what Breyer had initially intended. Um, so, you know, there's actually a number of examples here. The, the best example I'll point to, um, and I think that it's had the most salutary effect in administrative law, um, was a uh, uh, an issue for him, and as articulated in his dissenting opinion in FCC versus Fox Studios, was the problem of when administrations, presidential administrations, change hands and, and the regular, the administrative state on a dime turns 180 degrees, you know, from Republican values to Democrat values or vice versa. For him, this was troubling, and, and he called upon courts to, to scrutinize the reasons given by agencies when they make these abrupt shifts and ultimately to temper them, I mean, to ensure that agencies are acting reasonably. Uh, this was an idea that Chief Justice Roberts took and ran with um, and ultimately culminated with a major development in administrative law in 2019 in a case called DHS versus Regents of California. And this was all about the Obama-era um, DACA policy, um, which no doubt our listeners are familiar with. But the long and short of it is, Justice Roberts, effectively building on Breyer's prior work, um, required that the government henceforth take into account so-called reliance interests whenever it changes position, um, you know, largely due to the party changeover in the White House. That was a big deal. Um, and again, it's, it's sort of an example of how a nuanced, thoughtful opinion or, or principle advanced by Justice Breyer was ultimately uh, uh, you know, co-opted. Justice Roberts took it and ran with it and, and ultimately um, engendered a pretty big change in administrative law for the better. So to you, Tommy, uh, how did uh, Justice Breyer differ from other justices when it came to interpreting statutes or constitutional provisions? Justice Breyer's philosophy was really influenced by his time working on Capitol Hill as a staffer. His approach was focused on the intent and the expectations of legislators. Justice Breyer really viewed the most appropriate way to enforce a statute as to look at what would a reasonable legislator have wanted uh, the outcome of a case to be based on the purposes uh, and expectations they had when they passed the statute. Justice Breyer was not uh, a fan of the textualist uh, strict interpretation view that Justice Scalia and other conservatives on the court had, which is essentially just to look at the text as it was passed uh, and the words within the four corners of the statute. Are there any highlights uh, that, that draw out that distinction uh, between sort of a stricter textual interpretation and sort of projecting 
what you believe the views of the creators of that provision to be? Yeah, a good example is a case about the Federal Arbitration Act from 1995 called Dobson. Uh, Justice Breyer interpreted the word, uh, that was a case about whether an act involving or a contract involving interstate commerce um, essentially allowed the act to extend to the full limits of Congress's Commerce Clause power. Uh, the textualist on the court looked at the definition of the word involving and read that to be a fairly strict and narrow uh, requirement for what the what a contract had to do. Justice Breyer looked more towards the purpose Congress had when it enacted that statute. Um, he looked at legislative history that suggested Congress really wanted this to be a game changer um, in in terms of clearing the field of regulating these contracts. Um, and so he essentially used his purposive view um, to read it as extending to the full extent of the Commerce Clause power. So uh, if I understand from taking both of your views of, uh, of Breyer's administrative law uh, jurisprudence and his interpretation of text, it seems like he would be the kind of justice to defer more broadly to the wishes of either an, an administrative agency or of members of Congress or the a, a particular party before the U.S. Supreme Court. Is that fair? It, it is. I believe statistics showed, in fact, that he upheld statutes from constitutional challenge at a greater rate than any other justice on the court uh, during his time. And I believe he also upheld administrative action uh, against challenges uh, at a higher rate than any other justice uh, during his time on the court. Will? Uh, so um, I echo what Tommy said, and the statistics certainly bear out that um, to an unusual degree amongst his peers, he would side with administrative agencies. And again, I think this comports with his progressive values and his belief in the possibility of effective regulation solving societal problems. Uh, that said, um, you know, there were critical dissents um, or concurrences or opinions uh, that he would issue uh, taking issue with the reasonableness of agency action. So uh, the one I just mentioned, that FCC v. Fox Studios, uh, in which he wanted to incorporate within the, the court's uh, framework for reviewing agency decision making, whether or not the agency sufficiently took into account the fact that it's, it's changing its policy on a dime. So it, it, with a justice like Breyer, I, I wouldn't want to paint in any broad brushes. Um, so I wouldn't want to take too much from those statistics. I mean, where he did disagree with an agency, he packed a big punch because he knew so much about administrative law. Well, uh, let me ask you, you mentioned reliance interests, this thing that I've only heard about in recent years. Uh, and and the, the root of it was an opinion from Justice Breyer? The, the idea. Um, so, yes, the, the first Supreme Court justice, to, and again, in this opinion to, that I've mentioned a number of times, FCC versus Fox Studios, um, he was the first guy to, to sound the alarm. That, that, hey, we've got a problem here. Um, you know, when we've got these political changes, uh, you know, in presidential administrations, it's leading to these wholesale changes in policy. Um, and we got to think about that. And, and in the course of judicial review, we've got to take that into account. And when agencies are rendering these changes, they've got to take these things into account. Um, there was a subsequent case in Sino Motor Cars when this idea of reliance interest was born out a bit more. 
and uh, I forget who authored that opinion, but Breyer was on it. I think it was actually Roberts. Um, but the long and short of it is it, it stemmed from his idea and that that term reliance interest was subsequently worked out in the law. And again, it ultimately culminated with uh, Chief Justice Roberts' blockbuster decision in DHS or Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of California, in which, again, he, he incorporated this, uh, this criteria criterion of reliance interest into the factors that a court must consider when it decides whether or not an agency is acting reasonably. It's interesting because reliance interests would seem, if you take that consideration seriously, it would seem to limit the range of decisions that a court could make uh, in the in the wake of bad lawmaking by Congress or uh, bad implementation by the executive branch. Here, here. The, um, that would be the point. And this is something I've written about and others as well. But yes, the practical effect of you know, taking greater consideration of these reliance interests um, is that you temper the, the swings. And now I should say here that, that to be sure, uh, Breyer was in no way trying to gum up the administrative state. Um, you know, again, it was progressive values. He believed in regulation. Rather, he wanted it to to make sense. He wanted it more efficient. He wanted it more um, responsive. So he was looking to improve regulation. Um, ultimately, however, um, these doctrines, uh, you know, not just this reliance interest, but others, you know, ultimately the the practical application of the doctrines that stemmed from his ideas can have this uh, anti regulation, anti-administrativist, or that's the, the current lingo for someone who, who thinks there's too much regulation out there. Um, and, you know, that's what I was getting at with my first point. He was so nuanced, so brilliant that he would put these ideas on the table that people who had different political values could then run with. Will Yateman and Tommy Berry are scholars at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. Four times a year since 1977, regulation provides the in-depth analysis needed to stay on top of the dynamic world of regulatory and economic policy. Regulation has examined every market, from environmental and labor law to health and transportation, and nearly every government intervention, from interstate commerce regulation to price controls. Oh, and it's also in plain English. Catch up on the latest issues of regulation at cato.org slash regulation. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.